We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The evolution of football and what will be the next big thing. That's what we're talking about this week on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch, and with me is Sean Siegel. And Sean, last week we came out of the gates pretty hard with a pretty heavy topic. And and so we figured this week we might as well lighten things up a little by talking about the entire evolution of the sport. Yeah, so we had only about three or four hours worth of material we didn't get to for last week's topic. We felt like instead of... Going back into that, we have a lot of it that we'll, we'll bring in into some future topics. And going through this one, I think we probably have seven or eight hours worth. So it'll be interesting to do in three 30-minute episodes. We're going to be looking back at an article that you wrote. We have one of our very uh, favorite analysts to come in for the third show of the week to give us some insight there. And then also, we just want to give a, a thank you to everyone who... Tuned in last week, the response was, you know, more than we could have possibly hoped. We're very grateful to everyone who did that. Thankful to the folks uh, sharing the show, giving us those rating and reviews. It just really blew us away. We're going to have some contests to reward some people for that. I haven't gone through all the details with Ben yet, so we'll bring that up next week in terms of specifically what you need to do. But thank you so much for listening. And, and Ben, let's get into this topic uh, I approached you with this idea because back in 2017, you wrote a piece that really captivated the industry talking about uh, trends that changed the game and how they were going to change it again. When I was thinking about this concept this week, and when I talked with you, you weren't familiar with it, but one of my favorite shows when I was growing up, a silly, campy, uh, sci-fi Western, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. with Bruce Campbell and, and the main character there uh, wanted to always know what the coming thing was going to be, right? So he's a, a futurist back in the 1800s. Ben, you're a futurist for fantasy football. Uh, start us out with some of the things we need to look at or how we should be looking at this topic of the next big thing in fantasy football. And, you know, do we even know what the next big thing is, you know, once we're already seeing it, once it's in place? Yeah, and, and as we talked about doing this topic and you asked that question, I immediately thought of, of this article that I wrote a few years back. A lot of the, the trends and things that are discussed, I think were really on point. And it, it was um, sort of before, I think, a lot of the discussion 
yeah, I mean, if I can be so humble as to say they were they were very on point, but uh, a, a lot of it was it was sort of before the discussion of, of heavy three wide receiver sets and how we were changing, and and that became a really big talking point in the in the years that followed. But I I I thought. I mean, it's one of my one of my maybe favorite pieces of research I've done. So you know, I I, I I think of it fondly because I I thought through some of the trends that were being shown, but at the same time, I was very wrong about certain things. And um, those things are a really good warning to that question you asked about sort of you know, do we even know what's what's going to happen, or, or or like you know, how can we profit off it, or, or what does it mean? And so as we were talking about this and preparing, I sort of like one of, one of the big things I was talking about that was, you know, not just this massive increase in pass rate, the, the massive increase in, in shotgun rate had been discussed. I think uh, in that article, I had linked back to studies from football outsiders prior that was talking about how shotgun formation was so much more, so much more widely used. So, you know, certainly some of the three wide receiver stuff and, and all that had been had been discussed, but just sort of the impact that was going to have on fantasy football and target rates on, on all those types of things was a big part of this discussion. But it's funny, I wrote this just before the 2017 season. And what happened was these trends that had really been sort of exploding fell way off in 2017. So uh, I went back and I, I kind of looked at, you know, some of just the, the basic numbers, past attempts, um, you know, Play volume has has been increasing, but isn't as a huge of a element here. It's been pretty stable over the last decade, you know, up and down at, at times. But pass attempts, completion percentage is a huge one, and then what those two things mean in conjunction for completions. And so, um, when you look at the pass attempts, like back in, you know, in in the nineties was the was when you know teams were throwing 500, 550 pass attempts a game. At, at times, they got up to 550, more more in the lower 500s. In the in the 00s, it was pretty pretty steadily in the lower 500s, and then in the 2010s, we started to see it really rise. In in 2012, we had 556 pass attempts per game, which was at that time it was second most all time because 1995 was this really big outlier year, but it's second most all time. But then in 20, 2013, it went up to 567 pass attempts. It added another 11. Uh, 2014 dipped back down a little bit to 558. And then 2015 and 16 was 571.9, 571.7, nearly identical two seasons in a row in, in 2015 and 2016 that, that still to this day, the only two years in NFL history where teams averaged over 570 pass attempts. Obviously, this is all going to change when we get to uh, a 17-game season as well. So th- these are 16-game numbers. Things are going to be a little bit different in the future. We're going to have to talk about per-game numbers when we can make these comparisons. But yeah, so those were the two years that it got over 570 is right when I wrote this. And then the next year, it dropped all the way down to 546 past attempts. The lowest number, 2017 was the lowest number it had been since 2011. Everything had been really kind of growing, 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 and it, it dropped. And at the same time, completion percentage has been has been really growing. It was back in the day in the 50s, the, the very first time the league-wide completion percentage broke 60 percent was 2007, and then even from there, that was it was 61.2 percent. But over the next nearly decade, it didn't crest 62 percent league-wide until 2014. But then in 2015 and 16, we had a league high 63 percent or an all-time high 63 percent. Both years, 2015 and 16 were very similar. We got up to 570 pass attempts. We had 63% completion percentages league-wide. I believe there was one 
fewer completion one of those seasons league wide than 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 the year than the other year. It was literally one completion uh, a difference, which we're talking about you know thousands and thousands. And so anyway, the the uh, the drop in pass attempt in 2017 occurred. There was also a little dip in completion percentage, and so it was sort of this result that made you know made you think, okay, we you know you probably overreacted to to some of this stuff. It, it couldn't just go up forever. You can't just keep adding pass attempts forever. You can't just keep adding pass efficiency forever. There's a range that is reasonable. 63% is incredibly high. We're, we're probably reaching the top of that range. But a funny thing has happened since that drop in 2017 is each year since we've added pass attempts back. We added at least five uh, per year in 2018, 2019, 2020. In 2020, we were back up to 563 pass attempts, not far off the 571 in 2015 and 16. But the other side of it is completion percentage did continue to creep up. And last year was the first year in league history it got over 65% league-wide. Remember, I just said it, it had only gotten over 60% for the first time in 2007. And, and if you think about like a, a range of possible league-wide completion percentages, you're, you're not going to have league-wide completion percentages over 70%. That's like where Drew Brees has set the record. You're not going to have league-wide completion percentages under 50%, at least not since, you know, maybe back in the 40s or something. But we've at least been in this like 55% to 70% range. So every time you're ticking up even one percentage point league-wide, it's a pretty big improvement in terms of completion percentages. But we have now over the last 15 years ticked up you know, like I said, in the last 15 years, we just hit 60% for the first time. Now we've hit 65%. We've ticked up seven, eight percentage points in completion percentage. And the result has been a spike in completions, which in PPR leagues means a lot more receptions. It, it's a really important thing for, for passing games. Uh, I know when I wrote this article, I was looking at how average depth of targets were falling. I think teams are actually getting more aggressive again and then or, or got more aggressive again and then and then it's been falling I, i'm not exactly sure where we're at with a dot but certainly some of this is related to a dot because some of it is related to things like the increased use of jet motion tip passes which are just free completions and other short quick hitter passes quick wide receiver screens we also have the element of teams wanting to get those dynamic running backs the ball but a short pass can be a more effective way to do it than running that guy into the line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it, it is, just to wrap up the data, it, it's really interesting that last year we were back up, uh, even the 2015 and 16 years that I was talking about being really high in pass attempts and pretty high in completion percentage at 63%, the league average team was 360 completions, which is really the stat that matters more than pass attempts. And then that dropped, you know, in 2017, it started to creep back up pretty quickly, actually, in 2018 and 2019, it was up over 350, close to the 360 mark. And then this past year, it was an all-time high in completions at 367 completions per team last year, which blew away those 2015 and 16 marks, even though there was a, a little bit less pass volume. So that combination of, you know, more efficient passing, and I, I think we're still seeing passing trend up, even though it's not going to go probably way over this 570 mark, maybe 2015 and 16 were sort of an outlier. We're still seeing it sort of trend up, certainly over the long view in league history, but even lately, and, and we, you know, we talk about teams like the Bills that, that were so pass heavy last year and built so much of their offense around passes. It's really interesting to think about how that's going to impact fantasy going forward. We have a lot of ways that we want to talk about that. I just kind of wanted to set that groundwork of like where we're at now, 
uh, and what it means. So, yeah, what, what do you think about that? What do you think about how things peaked in 2015 and 16, kind of fell back, and then we're back in, it seems like, you know, the golden era of passing again with efficiency being way up and, and volume still being close to the all-time highs? I think the main thing that's happening here is that teams continue to realize that passing plays are much more efficient than running plays. They're extremely important to scoring points, which is obviously going to be your goal for the team most of the time. And you wanted to start that on first down, right? When you pass on first down, you're more likely to pick up those first downs, more likely to score points. And you set yourself up now in a passing type of environment with your offense. So you have teams attacking more on first down. You have teams like the Chiefs and the Bills who understand that even once you get ahead, you want to continue to play this very efficient game. The flip side of that coin that I think is also interesting is that we go and look at the way running backs are playing. And I mean, this is very obvious. People know this generally speaking, but you look at the very beginning of the century and you see the first four years here, 2000 through 2003, and you have an average of eight bell cow running backs who have at least 200 attempts and 50 receptions. And then the interesting thing is that half of them throughout that time period would repeat the next season ever since. So 2004 through 2020, those numbers have really fallen off the table. You're at 4.7 for the season and only 1.7 repeat. So we're now into an environment where we have about the same number of running backs hitting this sort of bell cow level that we used to have running backs who could repeat, right? And you, you think of how rare it is for running backs to repeat the level now compared to what it was uh, just a few years ago. You mentioned this idea of how things can change. They look like they're going to change, and then suddenly perhaps they don't. Ryan Collinsworth wrote a series a couple of years ago for Rotovis that is one of my all-time favorites, looking at running backs, looking at running, what running backs needed to do to score points, the difference between an RB1 and an RB2. In 27 and 2018, you had for the first time this fantasy scoring where a running back one was getting almost half of his production in the passing game. And I think a lot of this goes back to this idea that you're talking about in terms of the completion percentages going up, this idea of we want to get the stars, the ball in space, as opposed to slamming them into 300 pound bodies. But then the interesting thing that happened was in 2019 and 2020, we bounced right back to this level where the running back one is getting 60% or more of his points as a rusher. And a little bit what happens there is that when you have a couple of big seasons by a guy like Derrick Henry, you're going to see the running back one number sort of move back in this running back heavy mindset. You also have that injury last season for Christian McCaffrey, where you take him out of the equation and you have one of these main guys. But we were looking there for a couple of years where we have Le'Veon Bell, we have Todd Gurley, we have David Johnson. Certainly we have Christian McCaffrey and Alvin Kamara. And you have this type of back who can average 10 plus expected points. So how his volume translates into what you would expect him to score in fantasy. 10 plus points as a rusher, 10 plus points as a receiver, or in that at least eight, nine category. And you have this back who can score not just 20 points, but 25 points with McCaffrey, maybe 30 points. And the interesting thing for me is that I think that we're actually moving back out of that fairly quickly. And with the pass heaviness that you're talking about being pushed in some ways more to these receivers, uh, you have the, the Rams passing game, obviously, where they get the ball 
uh, to Robert Woods in a variety of, of other ways. You have some of these short passes. We're going to talk about some specific guys in the second episode. But we have this question of, you know, can some of these guys like Saquon Barkley stay healthy? And do we actually have a return to the bell cow running back? Or is this going to be a mirage where you know, we have McCaffrey, but then beyond that, you know, with Kamara having the quarterback questions, the offensive scheme questions, I think that we're definitely into this passing landscape where teams know that they need to score more points. They need to run more efficient offenses. But it's been interesting to see how different teams have attacked that because we also have some of the very best teams in football with the best coaching staffs, the best front offices going a little bit in the opposite direction. So, you know, we have a team like the Ravens, uh, sort of a, a very specific type of environment with Lamar Jackson there. But you have a team like the Patriots going to a more run heavy, maybe protect the defense type of style. You have the Seahawks you know, bizarrely thinking that they can go back in that direction. When we see some of these good teams go the other way, one of the things that I'm wondering is, are we going to see even a larger split? Because one of the things that we could always really count on in the past is that, like you mentioned, there were these ranges the teams could realistically pass in. And if you had an Aaron Rodgers, you had a Peyton Manning who were extremely efficient, you knew the efficiency was going to put a cap on their volume. Could we move into an era now where some of those top passers are not capped in the same way? And yet at the same time, we have to deal with teams who are taking a, sort of a, a contrarian approach, moving to a more running back heavy scheme within this overall trend in the NFL that is more pass heavy, more aggressive. Yeah, and I think that's an incredibly interesting question. Of all of our notes, one of the things I want to dive into the most, it, it leans into um, a few other things that we want to discuss as well, but we're going to get to those after the break. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, Sean, before we went to the break, you were talking about how we might be seeing a widening gap between different types of offenses. As far as I'm concerned, probably the, the, the sharpest thing that we're going to 
discuss on the show today because I think that's exactly what we are seeing. I think that's incredibly accurate. And I, I, and I think sort of the big reason is the increased acceptance of analytics in football, which has been sort of this big, whatever, bugaboo, big discussion point for tons of years. Teams love to say that they don't care about analytics or don't pay attention to analytics. Even the teams that we know do, you know, Bill Belichick is famous for that. The Patriots for a long time had an edge because they were optimizing for the roster that they had. They were optimizing their offense and their, their schemes and their team for the way they were built. And a lot of teams weren't. There are so many old school football guys, so many teams thinking that things had to be done a certain way. And I think what we're seeing now is teams being willing to not think that way anymore quite as much. There's still mistakes being made, but they're not thinking only that they have to do things a certain way uh, to succeed. And so we see teams like the Bills completely, basically abandon their running game for all intents and purposes. It wasn't so much like a, a Mike Leach offense from, from college. They were running a little bit more than that, but it also wasn't too dissimilar from that. It was a, a spread passing offense that was very pass heavy, very heavy above expectation. There was games that they wanted to be competitive in, especially where you saw them throw every down, basically games against the Chiefs and, and some of those games that stuck out. What's interesting, and when you compare it to like the, the old Mike Leach offenses, the Texas Techs and, and, and Washington State offenses that were so pass-heavy, those teams always had these really immobile quarterbacks. What the Bills did was build an offense around their quarterback mobility because Josh Allen changes the, the, the numbers and the way the defense can play things, right? So uh, at Texas Tech, you could rush three and, and you could drop eight guys into coverage, and that's how a lot of Big 12 football was played in that era. With Josh Allen, you can't. You have to have a spy on him or you have to rush four or five. And then you're, you're dropping fewer people into coverage. And then it becomes a really big challenge defending guys like Stefan Diggs, who, you know, Matt Harmon just shared and from his reception perception. You shared on Twitter yesterday, I saw that, that Stefan Diggs broke the record for best success rate against man coverage in his charting, his player charting that he does. And we know Stefan Diggs to just be phenomenal as a player, as a route runner, and is a perfect fit for that numbers game that the Bills offense forces defenses to decide how many are they going to commit to rushing the passer because if they only commit three or four josh allen's going to beat you with his legs and then what what do you do when then you only have five guys back and, and they're sending five guys out in routes and you have to play man coverage and you have stefan diggs as this world beating uh man coverage beater and and even cole beasley's another guy that you would assume they acquired for the same reason a very you know strong short area quickness type player that that had a you know career year last year in this offense so they designed that entire offense very analytically forward thinking and then you have the complete flip side of the equation the ravens have, have built their whole offense around lamar jackson it's become even more run heavy than any team we've seen in, in a very long time but it's been very successful as well it's been efficient it wasn't as great last year but especially in 2019 was unstoppable unstoppably efficient the passing efficiency was through the roof because it played off of the run efficiency and, and how how dynamic their running game was it allowed them to basically force defenses to again have to choose they had to either commit the the, the defenders to stopping a run game that was pretty efficient or basically yeah let teams run all over you which nfl teams never want to do and and then because they made the choice to then leave you know, their secondary and in, in, in weaker positions, one-on-one -on -one coverage and things like that. It created awesome opportunities in the passing game. You know, some of that has been looked at whether the running running game actually influences passing efficiency, I think has been debunked a little bit. But I think with the Ravens, particularly with how, how efficient they've been in the passing game, you have to believe that there's some sort of an effect. But 
when we start to see these offenses like those, those are way more extreme than everything used to be more clustered in the middle in this old school football thing that you have to play a certain way. You have to you know run on certain downs and in certain situations. And the more and more that teams are actually starting to embrace these alternative philosophical you know game plans and, and offensive schemes, I think you're absolutely right that we're going to continue to see this wide, this gap widen. And that kind of leads me into sort of this other topic in terms of how we're looking at players and what we think the scoring environment is going to be. We know that fourth down attempts were up last year. Conversions on fourth down attempts were well up. And we also have some... Uh, you mentioned the analytics. I think teams are looking more at how you convert in the short yardage and getting a little better about that. One of the things that is interesting is the Bills were toward the bottom of the league in fourth down attempts, very successful in fourth down. They have the ability to create even more offense if they're more aggressive and they take that next step. The Chiefs a little bit in the middle, but not particularly aggressive either. You have some of these efficient offensive teams who could yet get more explosive if they decide to take that approach. Do you think that we'll see that? What, what's the balance here for a team that's going to be leading a lot? We know that the Chiefs and Bills throw a lot when they're ahead. Will they attack on fourth down when they're ahead? Some of the things that I think are interesting when we see some of these efficient teams go to a more run-heavy approach, some of that may be the result of this ability to actually be run-heavy and yet effective in terms of limiting things like turnovers. So it's one of the things that you would expect to see. You talk about uh, teams running the ball to protect their quarterbacks. And we know that hasn't been particularly effective because then you place your quarterback in a lot of third downs. And if your quarterback is weak already, you're worried about turning the ball over in some of these situations. But if you have a very dynamic offense from an efficiency perspective, you have that quarterback who can take care of the ball, then perhaps you can rush it and yet protect in a way that you can then limit the amount of touches that your defense has to face. So a, a couple of questions there in terms of what we're seeing with fourth downs and what you think the tactics are for these teams that are good teams and yet are run heavy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure I have a great opinion on the tactics. I, I certainly have a better understanding of, you know, what I was just describing of like what the Bills are, are doing and trying to do than say what the Ravens are trying to do. But I, I think the fourth down aggressiveness point, it, it just sort of, further emphasizes what we were just saying about the divide. There's going to be teams that aren't going to be aggressive enough on fourth down. And then we saw teams like the bills be more aggressive. And because of that, they're going to sustain more drives. They're not just going to punt the ball. They're not going to just keep playing that way. It's that's an, another huge element that's leading to the divide in plays and, and efficiency and or points, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Fantasy goodness, you know, <laughs> like what, what, what we want. Uh, we want offenses that, aren't afraid to try to stay on the field and go for it on fourth down. And if they don't get it, okay. then they leave a short field. Like that actually works out great for fit. That's like, you know, the way that we all played Madden growing up, like, okay, then the other guy scores real quick. You get the ball back and you got to go try and score again. Now we're, now we're in shootout territory. Like we, we like all of that for fantasy. So punts are, are sort of our arch nemesis and, you know, teams like Seattle's the one that comes to mind. I don't know if their punt rate is actually that high. They were pretty aggressive early last year at times, but Certainly, we know that Pete Carroll historically has kind of been willing to go into his turtle shell a little bit, and or maybe you know Mike Tomlin gets that criticism, or, or whoever it is. I can't think of great examples off the top of my head, but when those when those instances occur, it's just bad for the fantasy potential of that offense and for the game because they're they're trying to pin teams back and play defense, and that other team has this long field. So the the fact that there are going to be teams that are embracing that just 
further, I think, widens this divide. It, it, it brings up this, this question of like, how do we, how do we analyze this for, for fantasy? And I, I think the answer is increasingly that you need to consider the team that, you, that the players that you're picking plays for, what their, what their um, approach is, what their offense is like, you know, we're going to get more into player specific stuff in our second episode this week. But uh, one guy that I really want to talk a lot about is Stefan Dix, because I think he should be the wide receiver one this year. He led the NFL in catches and yards last year in his first year in a new team. He was much better in the second half than the first half, more consistent in terms of volume and yardage. He averaged over 100 yards per game in the second half of the year. The touchdowns weren't quite there, which is why he was, I think, wide receiver three at the end of the year. He had eight TDs, but he scored twice in the playoffs. Um, the two guys who finished ahead of him, Devontae Adams and Tyree Kill, had 18 and 17 TDs. So they had these monster seasons that you would expect to be tough to repeat, especially if Adams doesn't have Rodgers. And I don't think that for Diggs it's it's – fair to, to think that he'll repeat only eight touchdowns when he had 168 targets. Uh, one of the big things he didn't have a lot of last year was long touchdowns, which he was so good downfield for Minnesota in his final season there. So I think we'll actually see more of that. He only had one touchdown over 25 yards in the regular season. He did add another one in the playoffs, but I think we'll see more of those 25 plus yard long touchdowns out of him this year, uh, especially as he's in his second season with this offense. But the reason I think his targets and volume and all those things proved down the stretch was it felt like him and, and Allen started to grow together more. Allen, when he would extend plays, always seemed to be looking for digs on key third downs. I wrote about this early in the offseason and, and in Stealing Signals last year. It, he he really started to treat him like Rodgers has treated Devontae Adams. I think so much of that could carry over, and Diggs has this potential to just have a massive season. And the, the, the huge thing that supports that pick is what we know about their offense. What they showed us last year that they're willing to do like the reason that Stephon Diggs could average more than 10 targets a game is because of the way that they played and because of how aggressive they were both passing and on fourth down. So I want to have the number one receiver in that offense, apart from the fact that I think he's, you know, maybe the best wide receiver in the NFL. Well, frequent Rotoviz radio listeners will, will know all about our love for Diggs. As, as I was going back through and looking at Ben's archives in the, in the Rotoviz history there, I ran across a dynasty by low compilation piece from 2015 of his where Stefan Diggs was the featured player in the photo. And I was going there. I was like, I hope that when I go in, I'm the guy who was recommending Diggs. And unfortunately enough, I was. So by low Diggs 2015 for dynasty. The interesting thing here, Ben, you have a lot of people who want you, and we talked about this with the projections, but want you to regress the offenses, want you to regress the players, want you to regress the efficiency. We pushed back on that a little bit, but I think that this also does dovetail with the idea that the trends make a difference, right? So we look at what happened in 2019 versus 2020, and you have 63 more fourth down attempts, 77 more fourth down makes, 400 more total plays. We also talked about things that quickly bounced back to normal, Last year, we have no fans in most of the games, and that almost certainly makes a difference in terms of how aggressive the road team can be. When we're looking at this and we're looking at players like Diggs, are we looking at them from an overall structural perspective? Are we looking at them from their role within the offense? One of the things that was infuriating with Diggs in Minnesota was that he consistently proved, if you look at his peripherals, that he's one of the best vertical receivers in the NFL and he's one of the best underneath receivers in the NFL. You can't stop him from getting open underneath. You can't stop him long. And yet the Vikings would sort of bounce back and forth year to year, whether he was exclusively a vertical receiver 
or exclusively an underneath receiver. It's like use him as the main guy, right? Do we have some players? And again, we'll talk about players more, but when we're looking at this and we're looking at things like air yards, there's a lot of focus on air yards because we know that the volume that a receiver is going to get is this function of total targets and uh, the depth of those targets together. And yet when we look at guys who are exclusively deep target guys, you're not getting the whole package. So when we're looking at the depth of target that we really like, it's going to be somewhere in the middle there because that shows us that we have a guy who's going deep like Diggs was last season. And yet at the same time, we're getting those underneath targets. DeAndre Hopkins is someone else that I think about. There's this concern about, you know, I had so many targets close to the line of scrimmage last year, especially when the offense wasn't functioning that well. But if you simply take those targets away, then you remove, you know, that three for 30 little bounce to his profile. But that's six points. The difference between him having those six points and being a longer depth of target guy who doesn't have those six points is a big deal if those six points are extra as opposed to being replaced somewhere else. Right. And that's the, the key point. You want you want guys, especially as we look more and more at air yards, you want guys that are going to be great at all depths, I think. And, and I think that's a very big point. There's there's certainly exceptions to that rule. Michael Thomas is a great one that, that immediately comes to mind where he was just racking up so many targets in the underneath space that, that it was fantastic. But yeah, that was the thesis for Diggs last year. I mean, that was... Uh, I know how, how I was describing the, the reason that you should be on him was that Buffalo gave up so much to acquire him. It was clear that they wanted to use him as their alpha. They were trying to get Antonio Brown in the offseason before, right? They, they were looking for a number one for Josh Allen, and the and the Vikings hadn't been using him that way. The guy that is, is comparable that, that I've been talking about all offseason, to me, and the situation won't, won't improve as much as Diggs did because Diggs went from a very run-heavy team to suddenly being in one of the most forward-thinking and pass-heavy offenses and, and – I don't think that that can happen for this player, but it's DJ Moore who in this first couple of years was his, his average depth of target in his rookie year was below average. His second year was right at league average for wide receivers. And then last year jumped two yards to basically being a deep threat only. And yet he was still very efficient in all these roles. He was earning targets at all depths. You know, they had the coaching change. They used him in a way that I think was kind of silly, but now Curtis Samuel's gone. Teddy Bridgewater, I think, was not a good fit for DJ Moore down the field. I can think of at least one deep ball where he was wide open and Bridgewater missed him for what should have been a long touchdown. And and one more long touchdown changes. Like, I don't think people realize how much that changes a 16-game sample of the data we look at and what his efficiency would look like and all those things. People say he can't score touchdowns. Well, he had that, and he also had a really bad drop in the back of the end zone. It's very much not like DJ Moore. Um, that immediately both come to my mind. He, he he probably should have had six touchdowns last year. He had four, but do I think that's going to be predictive? No, I, I think he certainly has a potential to score touchdowns. Um, but he's exactly like Diggs in that regard to me. It's just that he's still in Carolina, and we have to sort of hope that with no Curtis Samuel there anymore, that they will use him closer to the line of scrimmage as well, that they'll kind of evolve their thinking, but they have the same coaching staff. So uh, it, that's a little bit more of a wish with Diggs. There was a little bit more we could go on where, Hey, the bills went out and they traded a first, a fourth, a fifth, a, a ton of stuff to get him. As far as Moore's concerned, it's, it's a little bit more wish casting, but the upside is so clear. And and the downside is what that they're misusing him again. And he's still very efficient in whatever role he's in because he's only ever been very good. And so he's not a huge miss. That was the thing. Everyone was mad last year that he didn't meet expectations. I was fighting people in my mentions on Twitter all year saying, you're not your team doesn't suck because you, you took DJ Moore. Your team sucks because of some other picks you made, I promise. Because you know, my team that finished top 20 in the main event had DJ Moore on it. Like he was fine. He didn't bury a team. 
And so he's that same pick this year in the fourth round where he's not going to bury you. At worst, they keep misusing him, and he's, you know, a fifth-round value that you got in the fourth round. But the, the upside scenario is that he starts to get used at all depths like Diggs. Um, maybe it's not as great of a situation as Buffalo, but that would be monstrous for him. It would, and especially if Sam Darnold can take not maybe a, a Josh Allen type of step forward, but if he can take a step forward, that offense could be very explosive. And, and I was noticing the same thing yesterday when looking at Chris Godwin versus DJ Moore versus Mike Evans for a best ball pick, just the peripherals for Moore and those uh, strengths at different areas of the field that you mentioned are fantastic. Ben, before we wrap up the first episode on this topic, I wanted to ask you a little bit about short yardage tactics. Uh, I had Dave Cabin pull some numbers for me. Uh, for Rotoviz listeners, subscribers, we're going to have some really cool new info on the site this year. I think uh, Dave and Ben were even talking about a potential stealing signals tool last night. Looking at 2015 to 2020, we have almost a two-to-one rate of rushing the ball versus passing the ball more at the one or two yard lines. And I think that, you know, that makes sense. We also have 62% success rate in terms of scoring touchdowns on the run, only 51% with the pass. Some of those things are also going to uh, extend themselves to this idea of how teams are playing on fourth down and short yardage all across the field. Uh, One of the teams that jumps out or a couple of teams that jump out as being very skewed in terms of how they attacked last season in these circumstances were the Rams and the Cardinals, a couple of teams with young coaches. You have 23 rushing attempts to only four passing attempts inside the two there for the Rams. You have 22 and four for the Cardinals. You have 22 and eight for the Dolphins. On the other hand, you have some teams Uh, like the Green Bay Packers, who obviously have Aaron Rodgers, or did at the time, where 10 rushes to 14 passing attempts. One of the reasons why you could have some blow-up numbers for his wide receivers, we have a little closer numbers for a team like the Buccaneers with Tom Brady there. How much are we going to see this play into it? And certainly for those of us who were frustrated by what the Cardinals were doing and how Kenyon Drake, who they obviously didn't believe in themselves, allowed to leave in the offseason versus how it was affecting DeAndre Hopkins. Are, are we going to see a big split here from teams in terms of, again, kind of how they look at analytics that is steady from season to season? Or obviously we know they're not going to be steady, but we're going to have these big splits in terms of how teams approach the most important parts of the field for fantasy owners? It's certainly possible. Uh, I haven't dug into these numbers enough, but yeah, Kenyon Drake was infuriating last year and in a way that has made me at least open to a player like James Conner at his price tag. Uh, We talked a little bit about him last week. I don't want to be drafting James Conner, but if Arizona's going to run 22 times in that area and throw four times all season last year, like you noted, and certainly some of those runs were, were Kyler Murray runs, but a lot of them were Kenyon Drake. You also have the data here that Kenyon Drake led the NFL in, in, in rush attempts that, that close with 15, uh, just ahead of Dalvin Cook and Ezekiel Elliott, the kinds of players you'd actually expect to be you know, leading the NFL in, in, on this list. Yeah, if somebody like James Conner is getting that type of work, that's, that's obviously a situation to target. But 
I would be really interested in the year-to-year stability of stuff like this. I feel like coaches get into patterns. Um, sometimes it doesn't work very well, and, and then maybe they overcompensate as well because there was times where Drake wasn't very effective. It's part of the reason he, he racked up so many attempts. One of the top guys here is Benny Snell, who I know you love, but I know you're probably also as frustrated as I because I had him in some leagues on, on, on your recommendation um, that – he got stoned a lot at the one yard line last year that happened several times. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. For best ball teams, especially, I mean, you're not, you're not starting Benny Snell most of the season, but in best ball, they just get in the end zone. Right. And, and it seemed to be something that the Steelers were very aware of. And there was discussion during the season about their struggles to punch in short rushing touchdowns. And, you know, you wonder if that influences things and how it might. I, I, certainly, it could have influenced their pick of Najee Harris, and maybe they continue to make the same play calls just with a different back. But if he starts to struggle, do they do they start to throw more? Do they suddenly overcompensate? Um, those are the types of things that I would be wondering about as well. I wonder about the stability of this year over year. So you could tell how excited we were about some of these questions, how difficult it was to uh, sort of restrain ourselves from getting too deep into the player-specific elements of it. Uh, in episode one there, obviously we had a cool discussion on Stefan Diggs. Diggs is going to come up from time to time because like A.J. Brown, he's sort of the, the focal point of everything that we think about and do as, as fantasy owners. But that'll finish us out for today. Uh, just a quick mention that if you want to get a discount to Rotoviz, put in the code RV Radio 2021 when you check out. Uh, make sure to check out some of our other great podcasts on the channel, like the flagship show with Dave Cabin and Curtis Patrick. For Ben Gretsch, I'm Sean Seal. You can follow him at Yards Per Gretsch. Uh, people seem to have a, get at least mild enjoyment out of the fact that you can follow me on Twitter, even though I'm not on there. If you want to do that, it's at FF underscore contrarian. I did remember what it was this week. And people push for me to come back from time to time. I was thinking if you could get me to 200,000 followers, maybe uh, Peter Overzet has a strategy in place for that. I, I could be as many as 200,000 <laughs> followers away, so it may not happen tomorrow, but that, that would probably get me back on. Stay away. Stay away. <laughs> Leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. We had a number of those last week. Really appreciate those early reviews. As I mentioned, we will have a contest for that in the short term. Uh, it'll have a, a multi-layered effect to it. So you know that Ben and I like to do complicated things here. We'll have a complicated multi-layered contest with these, but you can get an early jump on it by leaving us that review this week. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom, and a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. 
Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.